Hello, and welcome back to the Urology Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Urology Care Foundation. Our guest today is Lily Shockney, an incredible person who is both a breast cancer survivor and nurse navigator, helping other patients with advanced cancer advocate for their lives. Lily spent many years caring for her father during his prostate cancer journey, and this is their story. This episode contains some content surrounding suicidal thoughts and may be triggering for some. Lily, will you please tell us about yourself and a little more about your work? So let me begin by explaining that professionally, I am a university distinguished service professor of breast cancer. I'm a full professor uh, within the Department of Surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, which is a little different than what most nurses are. I am also the co-developer of a program uh, called WorkStride Managing Cancer at Work with the Johns Hopkins Healthcare Solutions. And I was the administrative director of the Breast Center at Johns Hopkins for over 20 years, as well as the director of their cancer survivorship programs for seven years. I've actually worked at Johns Hopkins now for 38 years, which is even hard for me to believe. I also founded the Academy of Oncology Nurse and Patient Navigators 11 years ago. And in simple terms, I do function as an oncology nurse navigator and patient advocate, which is part of the role of a navigator. On a more personal level, I am a two-time breast cancer survivor and was part of a multidisciplinary caregiving team for my own dad during his battle with prostate cancer, which then recurred in the form of metastatic disease. Lily, what have you learned from your father's prostate cancer journey? When my dad was first diagnosed, I went into nurse navigator mode for him immediately, uh, trying to make sure that I could provide him uh, medical information that he could understand about his disease. And uh, I also selected the doctor that would be taking care of him uh, at, at Johns Hopkins where I work. He did very well and he remained in charge. That was awfully important to him. He's, he's a controller. Uh, and even though now he's been gone for seven years, he figured out how even to control from the grave. If you look at the word controller and my father's face should be right there in the dictionary. And as I say, he did, he did very well. Uh, he had radiation, nine weeks of radiation, and then uh, many years of hormonal therapy. Uh, then he uh, presented with severe back pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, and his belly was growing. And I thought, I think we're in trouble in a different way this time. So I had to come over. We did the staging workup tests that need to be done. And, and sure enough, he had metastatic disease. He had um, a lot of disease in his bones, but also in his soft tissue in his abdomen. And I said, I'm going to get you set up to meet with a medical oncologist who specializes in metastatic prostate cancer. And he said, okay, all right, but I, I'm going to decide what I want to do. I said, absolutely you are. Yes you are in charge of you and you will remain in charge of you. I want you to hear all of the options and what the pros and cons are about them. And uh, then you'll know what you wanna do. And he said, okay. So I then contacted the doctor that I was gonna be uh, aligning him with and uh, explained via email. I said, uh, my dad is a farmer. He is a first generation German farmer and uh, likes control, is still farming, 
still wants to farm. He needs to feel productive. That's very important to him. And it's been 10 years since he uh, was diagnosed before. So of course I've you know, accompanied him and my mother uh, to his appointment. And the doctor did a very good job in explaining, here's the, the, the treatment options. Here's the side effects of these drugs because he wanted to start with chemotherapy, shrink these things down, obviously, get his pain in control also by shrinking it down. And my dad said, well, that sounds to me like I can't, uh, I can't get out on my tractor or out on my combine. And the doctor said, well, don't, don't you think that you're ready to retire? Well, that was like lighting a match to my father's head. I'm telling you, I thought he is combustible and he's gonna implode right here in this room. So my father being my father said, I'm done, we're done, I'm doing nothing. And he wanted out of there. I'm, I'm like blocking the door. Wait a minute, just sit back down. Let's, let's revisit this. So I said to the doctor, farming is really, really, really important to him. This is his identity. He is the patriarch for farmers for the Eastern shore of Maryland. He has given over 40 farm loans to young men who wanted to be farmers when the bank wouldn't take a risk on them. And he didn't give loans to everybody, but he has given them to 40 men who have become wonderful farmers. He still wants to farm for as long as he can. And my father's going, well, I'm gonna have this side effect and that side effect and this side effect. I, I, it doesn't sound like I could be out there doing much of anything. So and the doctor said, well, I think, um, we could still use this one particular drug. And I said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we think about working within this patient's life plan? I said, because farmers have seasons. There's planting season in the spring and harvesting season in the fall. So why couldn't we give him his treatment during his two off seasons, summer and winter? Knock the disease down get him back out on the tractor to plant his crops, knock the disease down, get him back on his combine to harvest those crops. And the doctor said, huh, yeah, we could do that. And my father said, okay, sign me up. So I say this because to deliver patient-centered care, whichever patient deserves, you've got to know that patient and you've got to know them pretty well. I was hoping by saying my dad is a first-generation German farmer that that would be enough, and I realized it wasn't enough. And when it came for that discussion about, don't you think you should be retired by now? Whoa. Um, my dad at that time was, let's see, uh, 79. My father said, I have been raised to believe, and I do believe it, if you are not productive, then you should be dead. Doctor was kind of taken back by that. And my father pointed at me and said, I raised her the same way. I thought, yep, he did. And, and the doctor looked very puzzled by this. So my dad said to him, he said, let, let me give you an example. He says, my daughter will vouch for this as if thought he was making it up or something. He said, for many, many years, our farm was a dairy farm. He said, half of it, I uh, farmed the land, but the other half was the pasture for the Holstein cows. 
And he said, if we had a dairy cow who was not producing as much milk as she had been, we'd give her three or four days to get her milk production back up. We'd verify with the vet that would come out, of course, a large animal vet, uh, to make sure that she wasn't sick or something. And if her milk production was just naturally going down, we slaughtered her because she wasn't gonna be productive anymore. And the doctor said to my dad, he said, Mr. Diker, you're not a cow. He said, you don't understand. I was raised, I'm no better than one. And as a daughter, that was so terrible to hear. But as a nurse, I then understood why it is so important he be back out on that daggone tractor. So he did chemotherapy for quite some time. And then as he was getting sicker, he said, I think I want to stop this. I'm going to, I'm going to throw the towel in. I'm, 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 I'm done. And he sold the farms. He had three farms. He sold all of them. He laid on the couch as a couch potato. My mother would say, I don't know if this is depression or if this is the disease. I, I don't know. And I said, well, I'm concerned it's depression and maybe a little bit of the disease, but I think for him to have made this decision to sell the farms was huge. I said, mom, he, he grew up on the, on the home farm. He was born in that farmhouse for heaven's sakes. So, uh, and, and in selling the farms, he sold the farmhouse. So they had to move, which he'd never done. He'd never moved in his life. Can you imagine? And my mother and he had been in that house for 56 years. It was a, it was a, it was very unfun moving them. <laughs> so dad was kind of like Eeyore, you know, just poking around, just, you know, not happy with life in general, not wanting to go anywhere, not wanting to do anything, not wanting any company. And I thought he is not living. He is not enjoying his life as a farmer. And we always ask patients, there's key questions we'll say, how much do you know about your cancer? How much do you want to know about your cancer? Not everybody wants to know everything. What are you hoping for right now? What are you most worried about right now? And tell me three things that bring you joy. Well, when these questions were asked originally, farming was number one joy. And now he has stopped that. And when you are not enjoying your life, you are just existing. And that is not living for anybody. Not for anybody. So one of my breast cancer patients, stage four metastatic disease patients, uh, wanted to check off her bucket list and I was helping her with that. Her last thing on her bucket list was that she wanted to hold an event on a farm where she could bring together multi-generations of families of which one family member within those multi-generations had some type of metastatic cancer. Could be breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, could be any kind, didn't matter what it was. And she had a couple messages that she wanted to, to give. Her first message was, for those of you that are in my boat dealing with advanced cancers, I want you to know you have choice and you may not know it. You could be living each day with your cancer or dying each day with your cancer. So I hope you join me and decide to live each day with your cancer. Her other message was family is most important. 
Spend time with your family. Don't delay this. If you want to see your brother who you normally only see every other year at Christmas, change that. And you go to him or he comes to you, whoever is well enough and able to do that. You make that happen because you will reach a point where you are too sick to enjoy company, definitely too sick to travel. And I don't want you to have regrets. I myself don't want to have regrets. So you remember about the importance of family. And she said, I hope you all enjoyed being here on this farm today. So I rented a farm that was outside of Baltimore that is used for weddings. They have a huge Amish barn, which is where the weddings are held. We took over that beautiful, beautiful barn. We had a volunteer DJ to play music. We got food donated. And um, there on that farm, it was um, the end of September. So the timing was good. The farmer also had made a corn maze because he was getting ready for Halloween. So people would go through the corn maze. We had hay rides. Uh, you could make a scarecrow. So little ones could go over and our breast cancer survivor volunteers would help them make scarecrows. It was wonderful. Well, I asked my mom to bring my dad over, right? So they could partake in this. And I was there with my husband, my daughter, son-in-law and my two grandchildren, which are my parents' great-grandchildren. And um, so I saw when they arrived and uh, saw dad get, you know, get out of the passenger seat and, you know, walking over very slowly like Eeyore. And he said, oh, we're here. I don't know how long we're going to stay. And I said, well, daddy, you know, we're going to have corn on the cob and, and uh, uh, barbecue sandwiches and, you know, just, well, yeah, I know, but I don't know how long I, I want to stay. And with that, Kira, who was not quite two, ran over to him. And she, she called him Big Papa, Big Papa, Big Papa. And he leaned down and he picked her up and he held her. And he said, why is it that when I hold her and she now weighs about 18 pounds, I have no pain. But if I were to try to pick up a five bag uh, of flour, my stomach will hurt. And I said, because she gets your endorphins pumping. I said, you love her so much. All you can feel in your body is joy holding her. So off dad goes with her, kind of ignoring us, and says, that is a John Deere tractor. The color is green. You only sit on green tractors and green combines. And she said, green. <laughs> He's truly a John Deere man. And then he walked on and he said, let's walk through the corn maze together. He had only been walking about 50 feet and then would give out. I'm like, does anybody know where my father is? Oh, he's off in the corn maze. Can someone make sure he's not laying down in the corn maze with a child who's almost two? No, he was in there. He was, he was shucking corn, showing her what the corn looked like and telling her about the combine that he has. Now, goodness knows, she didn't understand everything, but she was very attentive to him always has been very attentive and he was just he was able to be a farmer for a little while he took her over and watched her make a scarecrow two very strong young men helped him climb up onto the back of a hay wagon so he could take her on a hay ride which 
if somebody told me your father's going to take a hayride, I would say, you're confusing my father with somebody else's father. And my mother said, look at your dad. He looks like he's getting younger. I said, mom, this is the first time he's been back on a farm. He's back in his element. And that is where he needs to be. So when uh, we all came into the Amish barn to eat and to listen to Rosemary say her two mantras, and um, he stayed till the very end. He did not leave early by any means. When it was time to leave, though, he said to my mother, I would like to drive home. Give me the keys. She said, you haven't driven for almost a year. He said, I know, but I'd like to drive today. And I'm like, call me when you get home, please. And he talked the whole way home, apparently. Talk, 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 talk. Talked about um, uh, this farmer uses pioneer corn like I do. And uh, his crop looks pretty good. I think he'll get a pretty good yield and just talk, 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 talk. Well, the next day was Monday. We held this event on Sunday. And I'm in my office and my phone rings and I always answer my own phone. I said, Lily, shocked to me, I help you. And it was my dad on the phone. And I said, daddy, what's the matter? Because he only called me at work when he had a you know, fever, severe pain, if something was wrong. And um, he said, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong at all, nothing. And I said, okay, uh, how can I help you? I didn't even know what to say. I was at a loss for words because I didn't know how to communicate with him about anything other than something to do with his disease. And he said, I listened to that woman yesterday. I said, yes, Rosemary. He said, I listened to her. He said, she said to me, <laughs> she said to me, <laughs> we had 320 people there. She said to me, for those of you with advanced cancers, like I have, you have choice. You can choose to be living each day with your cancer or dying each day with your cancer. And I realized I had chosen to be dying each day. I had given up when I don't have to. I want to be living each day with my cancer. So I bought back one of the three farms this morning and I'm gonna be leasing John Deere equipment and I'm gonna resume being a farmer. And all I could do was cry, I was so happy. I was so happy for him. And I, I said, put mom on the phone. And I said, mom, are you okay with this? She said, yes. I'm going to have my husband for several more years because he listened to that woman in that Amish barn. So I called Rosemary and I said, Rosemary, I, I have to share with you a particular family story that happened yesterday. And I didn't tell her it was my dad. I just told her there was four generations of one family there. This man, um, his advanced cancer, he had given up and he was dying each day and he listened to you. And he called his daughter and he said, I'm gonna live each day and this is what I'm gonna do. And I said, Rosemary, that man was my father. I said, you, Rosemary, have enabled me to have my father, I bet, for three or four more years. And I said, and that's just one story from the 320 that attended yesterday. And we may not get to hear the other stories. But I guarantee you, my family is not the only story. I said, so what you did is your legacy. And I will speak for you after you are gone. I am going to carry that mantra for you. With each patient that I meet with, with each speech that I give, I want to make sure that people understand 
that they do have choice. And she said, oh, you have made me so happy. And I said, well, you've made our family incredibly happy. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. It's, You're it's, welcome. Um, it's such a pleasure to hear that story and just think about the impact on so many different lives. Very beautiful. And I'm very happy that your, your family got to experience that and to see so much more joy. Let, if I may, let me also tell you a story about palliative care. Palliative care is uh, misunderstood. Palliative care, people think, means giving up. Or I only receive it the last week of my life. And we need to undo that image of palliative care. I don't even call it palliative care. I call it quality of life preservation or quality of life restoration because that's what the palliative care specialists are trying to do. They're trying to get symptoms managed so well that the patient is living in harmony with their disease. And who wouldn't want that? And we should be offering it early on rather than this very end and only discussing it with hospice. And that's what happens. The doctor will say, I think it's time for hospice and palliative care. Palliative care stands alone way back here at the beginning. Let's get palliative care on the multidisciplinary team. The patient may not even, even need them yet, but I want them to know this is your quality of life person. And if you're having issues with quality of life, then we're gonna, we're gonna arrange for you to meet with this person. My dad, who had been resumed farming, there he was out there on the combine uh, picking field corn and soybeans. And when he was back at the, at the house, he coughed. My mother said it wasn't a, 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 a big cough, it was a normal cough, but he went, ow. And he said, the middle of my back is killing me. And he ended up in bed an hour later. My mother called to talk to the doctor and said, let me, let me get some pain medicine in him so we can get this into control. So uh, it did get his pain in control, but it also made him sleep around the clock. There was my dad not being productive. Uh-oh. And uh, my daughter and two grandchildren, so his granddaughter and great-grandchildren, had driven three and a half hours uh, each way to visit him. And he slept through their visit and that really upset him a great deal. So he told my mother he didn't wanna live anymore and that he wanted his revolver. And this is a man who had suicidal ideation several decades prior to that. So we knew he was perfectly capable of ending his life. So that's what my mother called me. And I said, well, first don't give him the gun. Let's start with that. Don't give him the gun. I said, number two, um, let me arrange for him to meet with the palliative care doctor. I said, I uh, am not gonna tell him it's a palliative care doctor. Uh, I said, well, put daddy, give, give daddy the phone so I can, can talk to him. So I said to him, I said, dad, I'm making you an appointment to meet with Tom, our quality of life coach. He said, quality of life. Well, that's what I don't have any of. I said, right. I said, and, and Tom's job as your quality of life coach is to restore quality of life to you. And he says, well, the doctor put me on these pills that I'm just sleeping. He said, now granted, I don't have pain when I'm sleeping, but I'm not gonna live like this. If this is the way I'm gonna live, I'm not going to live like this. I said, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. I said, so let's, let's give Tom a, a, a crack at this. And he went, okay. So over he came the next day and Tom did as makes perfectly sense. 
he took some x-rays and did a scan to see what's going on in his spine. And I had talked to Tom on the phone uh, prior to the appointment. I talked to him the night before. Um, and I've, I've known Tom a long time. He's such a wonderful man. And I said, Tom, let me tell you about my dad. I said, my dad is a first-generation German farmer. Oh, he said, hard-headed. I said, very hard-headed. Very high ethics for work ethic. I said, right. And I said, right now he's in bed and he's taking narcotics and life is not good and he doesn't want to live like this. And he said, okay. I said, now my dad, when I just asked him, by the way, have you ever heard the word palliative care? He said, yes. That's where they stick you in a room alone in a hospital bed with the side rails up so you can't get out. Forget about safety. And they give you morphine through an IV continuously. So you stay asleep. And then someone comes in every 24 hours to check to see when you died. That's palliative care. And I thought, boy. And, but sadly, this is not an unusual description I've heard from other people as to what they think palliative care is. And I said, okay. I said, I just wanted to get your feedback as to what palliative care was. So I knew, you know, don't mention that word. So I told Tom, I said, Tom, when you meet my dad tomorrow, I want your white coat off because embroidered on it, it says palliative care. I want your ID badge off. It says director of palliative care. I said, I just want you in a shirt and khakis. You always wear your khaki pants and a shirt underneath of these things. And I said, do you happen to own a John Deere lawnmower? He said, yes. And he said, and yes, I have a John Deere hat. Is that what you're asking me? I said, yes. I said, can you bring that hat as part of your uniform? And you see my dad, he said, of course. I said, do you know anything about farming? And he said, well, I grew up on a goat farm. I said, that's close enough. <laughs> I'm gonna introduce you as Tom, Johns Hopkins quality of life coach, who formerly was a goat farmer. And he went, okay. So in comes Tom into the room and uh, we get dad up on the table. He's pushing down his back and he introduced him as, I'm Tom, your quality of life coach. I used to be a goat farmer. And he said, I bet you're right at this spot is where it hurts the most. And dad said, yes. And I'm standing in front of my dad to balance him. And my dad says, he knows that because he was a goat farmer before he came here to Johns Hopkins. And I said, yes. So he said to my dad, he said, um, I want you to tell me how much do you know about your cancer? How much do you want to know about your cancer? What are you hoping for? What are you most worried about? Tell me three things that bring you joy. When we got to the joys, he said, I have no joy. My joys are gone, which is why I'm thinking maybe I should be gone. And he said, what were your joys before you coughed and had this severe pain? He said, being a farmer, he said, my combine's sitting there idle right now. I, I wanna get back out on it and finish picking my crops. He said, I love being a farmer. He said, second, seeing my granddaughter and two great grandchildren. He said, they are honest, they are funny, they are hope for the future, and I love being in their presence. He said, and then my third joy is I give farm loans to young men who wanna become farmers when the bank won't take a risk on them. And he says, I've got two young men that wanna go into partnership to become farmers. And I've been putting them off now for two weeks because my brain's all messed up on these pills. I can't think straight and nobody is gonna make a decision with my money because this is a lot of money. 
that we're talking about. We're not talking about you know ten thousand dollars. We're talking about one hundred fifty thousand dollars as a loan. So Tom said to my dad, "Those three joys that you have just shared with us are now our three goals for you to reachieve because you have just described." your quality of life. These three things must be in place for you to have quality of life. So I'm thinking in my mind, okay, uh, he could put him on maybe some other pain medicine or have him have some pain while he does these, negotiates these farm loans. He can uh, visit with the children for maybe 30 minutes before he needs to take another dose and go back to bed. I'm trying to figure this out. And then with the farming, I thought, well, I think we're going to put diesel fuel in a mason jar and have him smell it uh, to simulate being back on the tractor. I just, I, I, I couldn't figure out how he was going to do this. So Tom said, you have a fractured uh, thoracic five vertebra in your spine. And in looking at it on the x-rays and scans that we did, I'm pretty sure we can do nerve blocks and vertebroplasties and make it gone. And I said, really? And my mother said, you're kidding. And my father said, are you telling me the truth? He said, I always tell my patients the truth. Always, yes. I think it will make it gone. Could you do it right now? He says, well, we're, we're gonna just schedule to, to do it tomorrow morning. He said, now I, I wanna negotiate a few things with you. My father said, okay. And Tom said, uh, that first step up on the ladder to the combine and to the tractor is about three feet off the ground. Father said, yes. He says, and your height is 5'5". Five, five. He said, yes. He said, so that's always been a big step up for you. I can't have you taking that big of a step anymore. Is there someone that can build an extension ladder down to the ground that can flip up? And I said, yes, I, I, I can make that happen. Absolutely. He said, okay. He says, now let's talk about how old your equipment is. How old is this is your combine, how old is your are your tractors? He said, I replace them every other year. Wow, he says, you know, few farmers do that. And he said, well, I do. So he said, so it's got a bubble on it. And if you fell over on the seat, everything shuts down. He said, yes. He said, because I got to worry about safety for you. If this was an open tractor, open combine, and something happened, you could end up running over yourself. And I'm sure you know that. He says, yes, and that has happened to my friends over the years. He said, that, that certainly has. So he said, very good, very good. Now I'm thinking, Tom didn't learn that being a goat farmer. He, you don't use combines and tractors on a goat farm. This man had to go online and learn about farming and how big is this equipment and what does it look like and what does it require in order to have this level of a conversation. So he also then asked him, how long do you need to be out in the cornfield or in the soybean field to realize and acknowledge I'm still a farmer because I can't have you out there eight, nine, 12 hours a day. He said, half an hour, they shook hands on it. Half an hour it is. And Tom said, with all of these young men that are not young anymore, that he gave farm loans to, for which he has been their patriarch, I'm sure some of these men now would want to pay him back by helping him pick his corn and soybeans and helping him plant in the spring so that everything still gets done, but it gets done Frank Diker's way. And my father said, gee, 
I think you're probably right. That, that would be nice. And I said, done. All of that will be done. 10 days later, because my dad had the procedure the next day, 10 days later, my dad called Tom cell phone to cell phone. And my dad said, guess where I am? <laughs> he said, I can hear where you are. He says, I hear the engine running. You're out on the combine. What are you picking? Soybean or corn? He said, I'm picking soybeans right now. He says, my wife's down at the turn row with a stopwatch that's on 30 minutes. So we don't argue about how long 30 minutes is. And uh, he said, this morning, I gave a farm loan to those two young men that are going into partnership. And I think they'll be very good farmers. He says, and when I finish and my wife takes me back home, fixes me my, my lunch, my, my granddaughter and my two great grandchildren are coming to visit me. Thank you for giving me my life back. Life is good again. That is palliative care. So whatever we can do to undo this myth of what palliative care is, and for people to also think it's only associated with hospice, so that more people can, can have quality of life, preserve it or restore it so that they are living in harmony with their disease. And whatever it is that brings them joy, that's how they should be spending the remainder of their life experiencing that absolute joy. Now, when my daughter and two grandchildren went to go visit him, my mother had been sent by my father into town, just a mile away. So he said, I'm losing weight and I don't want to buy a new leather belt. Go into Walmart and buy me a pair of red suspenders. And she said, Frank, you only wear beige clothes, beige work pants, beige shirt, beige work with beige shirt. Well, I want red suspenders. And she went, mm. he said, go bring me red suspenders. So she did. She went in and uh, got him on him. And she said, I told him he looks silly with red suspenders. She'd also bought beige suspenders, had the receipts for both, of course. And so he was wearing them when my daughter and grandchildren arrived. He was coming out of the bathroom. So they saw him from the back and he had a walker as he's getting over to his chair. Always oh, says, the family's here, this is wonderful. Sits down, puts Brendan who was four on one, leg and Kira who was two on the other leg and says, tell me what's happening in your life. And they're telling him everything and talking and this is all great. But nobody commented about the suspenders, which we thought was odd because children, they'll tell you, right? What's this, and, you know, spring on and everything else. But my daughter said to my mother, mom, what's the deal with the red suspenders? My mother says, don't even talk about it. He made me go into town to get them. I don't know why he wanted red, but he did. I bought beige ones. Here's the beige ones. I haven't told him I bought them. I've kept the receipt. I hope I get to take the red ones back. I don't know why he wanted red, but yes, there he is. She said, you know, he's losing more weight. He doesn't want to buy a leather belt. A leather belt is more expensive than suspenders. So my daughter said, well, I won't mention anything about him either, but I really find it odd that the children haven't said a word about these suspenders. And uh, my mother said, well, I hope they don't mention them either. I'm, I'm very concerned that he wants to wear red, doesn't make any sense. So they visited for two hours. They had a great visit. My daughter gets the kids back in the car. They're gonna do the trek back home to Pennsylvania, three and a half hours away. And my daughter said that they just got out of the driveway when um, the children were talking to one another. And um, Brendan said, and, and they, they understood that my dad had 
uh, had had really bad back pain and that he had to have a procedure done, which made his back feel better. And, uh, uh, and both of these children had been in the ERs before with injuries. So they could relate to this, you know, how much does this hurt? Oh, we had to get medicine. They didn't have to have a procedure. Oh my, oh no. And uh, even Kira said, did he have to go to the hospital? Yes, oh, that's bad. She's <laughs> she had full picture of this. So Brendan says to Kira, Kira, I've never seen a boo-boo as big as the one that Big Pop-Up has. And Kira said, me neither, not even when we've been in the hospital. And my daughter said, children, you can't see Big Pop-Up's boo-boo. And Brendan said, yes, we can. It's got a big red X on it. Because as, they, as my dad was walking away from them, there was those red suspenders crisscrossed in the back with the big red X. And uh, I called him to tell him that story. And my mother wrote it in her journal and I wrote it in my journal saying, we're gonna laugh about this later. That that's why the children made no comment about those red suspenders because they thought they knew what they were for. <laughs> And it's good to find laughter. I don't care how sick you are. I don't care how worried you are. I don't care if you're sitting at the bedside and you know that someone is gonna be leaving you soon. It is okay to find something to laugh about and share that laughter with them. The last two things we lose as we die is our hearing and our sense of touch. So people should, say whatever they want to say to that loved one, hold their hand, rub their shoulder, uh, whatever it is that they would normally do or would want to do, they should do it. They also need to remember because this loved one can hear everything to not say anything inappropriate or not have a discussion with the doctor right there over top of this loved one who is in a coma, perhaps. He can still hear and he still feels sense of touch. So that's important. That brings me comfort that I know I can still, you know, get everything in that I want to be able to say uh, is, it, I, I find that comforting for me. And I think it's also comforting uh, for, for the patient too. So those are my stories about my dad and his advanced prostate cancer. <laughs> Thank you so much. The stories I think are wonderful because, um, Obviously, it's a personal experience that people can relate to, but it's such a lovely way to hear how much medical professionals really do care about what they're doing, and they have the interest of their patients, you know, at heart. And I think that that's something that um, your your common person might assume that it's not like that, but your your examples and your stories certainly showed that. So thank you yeah. so much. And right up to when my dad passed away and he did speak to Tom on the phone two days before he died to thank him for being his quality of life coach. He never knew that it was palliative care. He never knew it. <laughs> yeah, that, That's a wonderful story. And it sounds like it made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if my dad had remained in bed and just sleeping, he would have had pneumonia within three weeks and he would have been gone two weeks after that. So we, we had him for uh, three more years. It was extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank I you. appreciate all the time you spent 
Um, and I'm so glad we had the opportunity to chat just, you know, face to face toward the end. It's wonderful. Yes. Yes. Me too. Me too. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org. That's urologyhealth.org.